Well, it's great to be back with you in Sainfield. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for leading tonight. Uh, and thank you, Stephen, for those pieces. Whenever I get home to glory and I join the choir, I'm standing beside you. <laughs> because that was first class. Beautiful voice and beautifully sung. Thank you so much. Yes, my mother-in-law is with me tonight. Uh, I'm 44 years married this year and I haven't had a crossword with her yet. So that's good going. And I think we'll try and keep up that record. Uh, We're looking at David over my time with you this morning. We looked at David in a day of famine. And we looked at 1 Samuel 21. And I know my heart was challenged as we looked at what to do whenever we're facing famine, spiritual famine conditions. Tonight... We're looking at David in a day of loneliness. And then on the four Wednesday nights, this Wednesday night we're looking at David in a day of battle. And then the following week, David in a day of harvest. And the following week, David in a day of worship. And then the last one, David in a day of reflection. So that's where we're going. Turn with me, please to a a lonely psalm, Psalm 142, Psalm 142. Now, I don't know what it says at the start of this psalm in your Bible, but in my Bible it says, Miskel of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. Miskel just means instruction. So it was an instruction, a a prayer, whenever David was in the cave. Now, we're not told which cave David was in. We have a few options. It could have been the cave of Adullam that's mentioned in 1 Samuel 22, whenever he was running from Saul, and he was running, his life was as a fugitive, and he was like a magnet, because all the people seemed to gravitate to David in the cave of Adullam. His family arrived, uh, and then people in distress arrived, and people who were discontented arrived, and people in debt arrived, and it grew to some 400 people. But if that was where David was when he wrote this particular psalm, we discover that in, in the midst of that 400 people, he was still lonely. And it's very true, isn't it? You can be in a big city and crowded with people and feel as if you're so alone and so empty. Or, of course, it could have been the cave of Engedi that is spoken about in 1 Samuel 23 and 24, near the Dead Sea, uh, close to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at Qumran in 1947 through to 1956. It was there that David was in the cave one time, and of all the caves for Saul to go into, he went into his cave, the cave that David was in to uh, answer the call of nature, and David cut a piece off his tunic and challenged him and said, look, I could have killed you. We don't know which cave it was in, but David is up against it. David feels the loneliness of leadership, and in this psalm, he cries out to God, in his loneliness and distress. Let's read it. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. 
I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. Thy righteous, the righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this beautiful psalm. And Father, we see David at a time at the bottom of the valley, at the most difficult times of his life, and he cries out to God. Father, as we look at this psalm tonight, we pray for your help. We pray that you'll give help in the teaching, but also in the hearing of your word, that we might go home not giving the preacher marks out of ten, but saying, isn't the Savior wonderful? So, Father, give help, we pray, in the Savior's name. Amen. Kipling, the English author and poet, said this, The human soul is essentially a very lonely thing. We are born alone, we die alone, and in the midst and the depths of our heart we live alone. A a happy fellow, wasn't he? (laughs) I don't agree with him, by the way. But but suffice to say that I, I agree that many in life feel the pangs of loneliness. They've known what it is to feel isolated, to be out on a limb. I heard about a wee boy of six years of age and he went to his first BB camp. And he wrote a letter as you did in those days. It was before the days of mobile phones. But he wrote a card to his mother. He says, dear mum, there are 50 boys here at camp this week. And I wish there was only 29. <laughs> and he was feeling lonely and he was feeling hard and he wanted home again. In the Bible, loneliness comes, appears very early on the scene. God created Adam and it was not very long before God said, it is not good for man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. What's this got to do with our service tonight? in St. Field. Well, tonight in this service, I want you to realize that it's possible to be lonely and isolated. You see, in a gospel meeting, even though there's a good number out, God wants to isolate you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to, you to forget the person beside you, the people in front of you and behind you. And he wants to speak right into your heart and right into your soul. This also includes those that are watching online, maybe alone in a room, maybe in a hospital ward, and they're sitting listening to this service. God wants to speak to you as an individual. And you could be sitting in a crowd, and yet God by his Spirit comes, and he isolates you, and he separates you 
because he wants to speak right in to your heart. Psalm 142 is the psalm of a lonely man. But loneliness can be good. Loneliness can be good because you have those times when there's no noise and no disturbance. There's no fuss, no people demanding attention, just you alone. And at times like that, it's easier to hear the voice of God speaking to your heart. At times like that, it's easier to hear the message settle on your heart. It's easier then to think of your sin and think of the turmoil of life and the roller coaster that life is. So loneliness can be a good thing. Certainly David in this psalm learned things about himself and about his need that he never learned in the palace. A palace where everybody was there to his beck and call. Everybody was there to meet his every need. But here in the cave, whichever cave it was, David felt the pang of loneliness. And he writes the psalm of a lonely man. The first thing I want you to notice in the psalm is the recognition. Look at verse number three. He says, Thou knowest my path. Very telling, isn't it? When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. What a comfort to David. He realized that, that God knew that day whenever he was out on the hillside and he thought he saw some of the boys running out of Bethlehem, and he heard them, David, me, David, me, you're needed at home. Why? Samuel's arrived. Sam, the prophet, yes. He's in Bethlehem, yes. He's at our house. No. (laughs) David, he wants to speak to you. David, the youngest of seven boys. And he walks in, maybe the kitchen, maybe the living room. And there's Samuel the prophet. And he bows his knee. And, and Samuel anoints him, anoints him as the future king of Israel. Wow, what a day. Thou knowest my past. God knew all about it. God knew about the day whenever he went to the valley of Elah. for Samuel 17. And there was the armies camped, the Philistines on one side, the Israelites on the other. And the giant of Gath came out and said, give me your your leader, give me your your hero, give me your champion. And we have fight it out. And young David went out. God directed the stone, hit the giant on the forehead, and David took Goliath's sword and cut his head off. Thou knowest my path. He knew about the times whenever Saul had set out to murder him and threw the javelin, nearly pinning him to the wall. God knew all about the the fleeing the palace and and living in the caves like a fugitive. God knew it all. Thou knewest my path. God knew that he was innocent of the charges that Saul was bringing against him. What a comfort for David. Dear friend, in the meeting tonight, I want you to know that God knows your path. God knows that you were born like the rest of us with a sinful heart. 
born walking away from God, away from the things of God, with no interest for God, that we were born sinners through and through. We are black with sin. We are dead in our sins, the Bible says. God knows all about it. He knows that we have a tendency to sin. He knows every lie. He knows every sin. He knows every thought that is unright and ungodly. He knows what we watch on the television and on our computer screens. He knows it all. He knows everything. He knows our path. And he says the end result of our life, our path, is that we are bound for a lost eternity. The end result of our life, our path, is that we are bound for hell. As sure as I'm standing in this pulpit, he knows our path. What a tragedy it would be to sit in St. Field Baptist and to have heard the gospel maybe from your mother's knee, from your earliest of days, and yet to go into a lost eternity to face the torments of God's wrath. God knows our path. But something else, on this path there's a trap. Look at verse 3 again. It says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path, and the way wherein I walked, they have privily laid a snare for me. In life, there's a trap. There is a strategy to make sure you stay in your sin. Saul was paying informers to find out where David was hiding, and they were going to try a sort of pincer movement to go on some on one side and some around the other, and they would catch David in the middle, and, and they were laying a trap to catch him. Saul was trying to snare him like a wild animal. Beloved, I want to say to you, be careful, because not only does God know your path, but he knows that on that path there are snares, there are traps that are laid for individuals. And we could spend a lot of time tonight thinking of these traps that are laid. We could think of peer pressure. Maybe that's more for the young ones. They want to fit in. They want to appear to be one of the crowd. They don't want to stand out or be different, and so they want to dress like them and go the places they go, and they want to feel that, that they're part of the group, and you get sucked into things that you're not really happy with, and you know your parents wouldn't be happy with, and certainly God wouldn't be happy with. Peer pressure. Remember years ago when I was pastoring a girl came to me, and these were different days, you understand, but she came to me to see if she'd be able to go to a disco. I said, well, have you asked your mom and dad? They said, yes, I've asked my mom and dad, and they said to come and ask you. <laughs> so I talked to her about the dangers and the difficulties and all the rest of it, and uh, trying to stay separate from the world and all the rest of it. And I could tell by her demeanor, she was determined to go. So I said to her, okay, you want to go, but tell me this. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Do you want to live for Christ? Yes, I do. Well, I said, tell me this. Whenever you go to the disco, tell at least one person you belong to Christ. She says, I'll do that. She came back to me a few weeks later. The story went like this. She was dancing on the dance floor. She remembered my words. 
And she said to the fellow she was dancing with, are you a Christian? And he says, no, are you? And she says, yes, I am. And he said, well, what the hell are you doing here? And left her on the dance floor in her own. Hmm? What are you doing here? And there's a peer pressure that lays a trap and you get sucked in without ever realizing it. There's the trap of exciting adverts and this world paints an attraction and a seductiveness of living and you feel if you're not there in the middle of it, you're somehow missing out. There's the trap of the artificial buzz of alcohol and drugs. and There's the trap of wealth and success, and you end up never being really contented, always looking for the next pound, the next uh, 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 promotion, and the next job, trying to reach the next level, and you end up with high blood pressure, and you take a stroke at 49 But you know one of the most dangerous ones? The most dangerous one is the trap of religion. You see, whenever I was a young boy, I grew up in the Brethren Assemblies. And I knew the answers to the quizzes. I knew the verses, the quote. I knew the doctrines and theology. But I wasn't a child of God. But I knew enough to win an argument. I looked apart. But there was no reality in the soul. My second car, I'll be giving the age away now, was an Escort 1100. Canary yellow. I thought it was the greatest thing on the road. It was a basic 1100, but it looked like a sports car. It had Mexico up the side. It had a black grill at the back, had bucket rally seats, a, a wee rally steering wheel, and had all the gear in it. And I thought, and boy, I thought I was so proud of it. The only trouble was when I got to the lights, some boys came up beside me and wanted to race me. <laughs> and my wee car wouldn't have pulled you out of bed in the morning. It looked the part, but there was no power. It looked like something it wasn't. And dear friend, in, in congregations like this, there's people, and they're like that in Mexico. They look the part. They look like the real thing. But there's no power. No reality in the soul. The trap of religion. All the traps are to stop you thinking about life and its direction. To anesthetize you to the reality it's all designed so that you will not think about your eternal soul. That soul that will be alive long after your funeral service. Your soul is eternal and everlasting. Dear friend, if you are not saved tonight, if up to this point you're not a Christian, then the, tra the traps have ensnared you. Trapped in sin. So David, 
the recognition. The Lord, you know my path, and you know the traps that are on that path. And as a Christian, as a preacher, I need to tell you that God knows your path. He knows all about you, inside and out. And he knows the traps that have been laid. Secondly, not only the recognition, notice the rejection. Verse 4. I looked on my right hand, and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. My, you can sense the desperation, can't you? You can sense the depression from the loneliness of the cave. David looks around to these group of some 400 people, maybe in, in uh, the cave of Adullam, and he, there's no one there to support him, no one there to encourage him. Uh, there, were, he, there was non-existent. It's the same old story, isn't it? Whenever you're playing the game and you're the life and soul of the party, you'll be surrounded by crowds and the mates will slap you in the back and have a great laugh. But when your soul is breaking and whenever you assess your sin and your situation and you start to think about death and eternity and God instills a fear, a conviction, an awareness of your guilt, the friends disappear disappear. It says, David, no man cared for my soul. It's not by accident that you find yourself in St. Field Baptist tonight. And if I was to ask the men, I wouldn't ask them this, but they'd probably tell you that this isn't the best Baptist church ever. They wouldn't tell you it's the biggest Baptist church ever. They would probably tell you that like every other fellowship, they have their feelings and faults. And... But I'll tell you this. They care for your soul. Because I was in the prayer meeting this morning and the prayer meeting this evening, and they were praying for you. <laughs> they were praying for people who'd be in the building. They were praying for people who'd be watching online. And they're concerned and they're burdened and they're broken. And there was people pouring out their heart for souls. They're in earnest about your need. And that's very precious. They're in earnest prayer for you in their prayer meeting come Wednesday night. Twice in the prayer meetings here on the Lord's Day. And I don't know, but I have a good mind that they carry those names back home with them and they're praying for you in their daily devotions. And tears are shed and their heart is broken over your soul. So you cannot say tonight, no man cares for my soul. I care. And this fellowship cares. And God cares. The pub owner doesn't care about your soul. The vapor shop or the cigarette company doesn't care about your soul. The bookies don't care about your soul. Camelot, the lottery runners, don't care about your soul. The world outside don't care about your soul. Tell me this. Do you care about your soul? That part of you that is eternal. That part of you that will live as long as God lives. The most valuable thing you have is something you can't see. It's the soul inside of you. And the only thing important in life is making sure that you're ready for death. 
that that soul is saved and protected and ready for heaven. Recognition, thou knowest my path and the snares upon it. The rejection, no man cares for my soul, said David. Ah, but the refuge, look at verse 5. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. David realized, you see, that the cave wasn't a real refuge. Its security was limited. David found his refuge in God. Oh, in the loneliness of where you sit tonight, listen to me. This fellowship cares about your soul, but they don't care enough. And I care about your soul, but I don't care enough. But God cares about your soul so much. He loves you so deeply that he sent his son to die on your behalf. There is no love like the love of Jesus. Why, he, he sent his son that first Christmas. He lived that perfect life as people recognized him as the Messiah and they crucified him on the cross. And there on the cross, God placed upon him the sin of the word. Could I illustrate it? Imagine this is me. And here, here's the weight of my sin. Heavy. How am I going to get rid of it? Because I can't go to heaven with it. If I read and pray every day, no, no, it won't, won't, won't change it at all. If I go to church every Sunday, it doesn't change it. If I become a church member, it doesn't change it. If I get baptized, give them a testimony, it doesn't change it. No. There's not a thing we can do to remove that weight. Over here is Jesus. He's got no sin. None. Not in thought or word or deed. And at the cross, God did a transaction. He took my sin and yours, and in those hours of darkness, He placed my sin upon His Son and punished Him instead of me. Isn't that amazing? That's why I get excited. I was preaching in the Isle of Man one time, and a wee lady came to me, wanted to speak to me after the meeting. I thought she was concerned. She says, I'm worried that you're going to have a heart attack on the platform. <laughs> I says, dear, if you only knew how much I tried to hold it back. Huh? Now, God took my sin. He made it his very own. He took my burden to Calvary, and he suffered and died alone. The death of Jesus Christ is your refuge. The death of Jesus Christ is your hope. The death of Jesus Christ is your only chance of salvation, your only hope of heaven. And God's promise to you tonight is simple yet profound. Be aware of your sin. Thou knowest my path. They have laid a snare for me. Be aware of your sin. Secondly, be aware of its consequences. Eternal judgment. Thirdly, embrace the salvation of God when he died on the cross for you. I was saved at 16. I said about it this morning, but I made a mistake that day. Not that I got, that I got saved. 
No, I've never regretted that. But my mother drove a wee mini. My dad had to stay at the church and I got left with my mum. And halfway up the old park road, I says, Mum, I got saved tonight. Well, she was all over the place. Oh, she was so excited. She was all over the road. I thought we were never, I thought it was going straight to glory. Oh, the joy when someone comes to know the Savior. He is our only hope. There's no back door. There's no easier door. There's no other door. He's the only door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. There's a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. It's the story about a love between a husband and his wife. They're lovers and they just he, devoted to each other. And at one point in that great book, the bride is describing her husband, and she's using language that my wife has never used of me, I have to say. She's used all the, all the attribute after attribute that, 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 uh, to describe his beauty, and then finally she exhausts all the similes and the metaphors and the vocabulary, and she just pours out, yea, he is altogether lovely. Dear friend, can I say of the Lord Jesus, he is altogether lovely. And David found in the cave that his trust, his confidence was in the God of heaven. And if your trust is anywhere else, it's a broken stick. His beauty is not found in his physical appearance on earth. His wealth is not what he accomplished here on earth. His wealth and his beauty is what he accomplished for you in the cross of Calvary. Recognition, God knows our path. He knows the traps. Rejection, nobody seems to care. The refuge, God was in the place where David could embrace him and trust him as his own. I maybe have told this story here before, but it comes to mind. took place in Donegal, true story, some years ago. It was a lovely, balmy summer night. And there was people having their ice cream on the pier, and there was people in the water, and they were enjoying the water. And there was one man out swimming, and different ones splashing. But, but suddenly that one of the men in the water was in trouble. Help! Help! And he was splashing. And everybody in the harbor looks at each other and says, Are you going? Are you going? No. Nobody wanted to go. And one young fella, he stripped down, dived into the water, strong swimmer, right out to where the, the man was in trouble. But a funny thing happened. Instead of rescuing him, he started to swim around him. And every time he came around, the man in trouble was trying to grab him. And the people in the harbor were saying, catch him, hold him, save him. And the young fellow just kept swimming around him. And eventually the man in the water had no energy left. No fight left. And he started to sink. 
And as soon as that moment came, the young fellow was over, got him under the neck, and brought him to the shore. And everybody, oh, brilliant. And one person said to the young fellow, what were you doing out there? There you were swimming around him. And you didn't rescue him. You nearly lost him. You know what the young fellow said? He said, if I tried to rescue him when he was trying to rescue himself, the two of us could have gone under. I had to wait until he would stop trying to save himself and would just lean on me. Dear friend, can I say to you lovingly tonight, God cannot save you while you're trying to save yourself. He's waiting until you stop fighting and you rest on him. The one who loved you. The one who died for you. The one who shed his blood for you. Just rest on him. Trust him. Say, I believe that when Jesus died, he was taking my place. He was taking my sin. He was taking my judgment. Lord, save my soul. I'm trusting you. And that's exactly what he'll do. David. David, the lessons from a lonely man. Recognition. Rejection. No man cares for my soul. But refuge. Refuge was found in God, the one who loved us, the one who sent his son to die for us. Dear friend, make sure you lay hold of Christ tonight, the one who died to save you. If you're not sure, then please speak to me. I'll do without my tea. I don't need another cup of tea. But it's far more important that you get this sorted. And I'll sit here all night, if need be, and open the Bible. I'll not embarrass you. I'll not twist your arm. I'll make sure you get home safely. But make sure you go home knowing that Christ is your Savior. May God bless his word to our hearts. We're turning to him. Not have I gotten, but what I've received. 388 in the book. And then please remain standing as we close in a word of prayer.